Listeners, we have a very special guest today. Um, we're thrilled to have on Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo, Prit Buttar. He's an expert on the Eastern Front in 20th century military history. His previous books include the acclaimed Battleground Prussia, The Assault on Germany's Eastern Front, 1944 to 1945, and Between Giants, The Battle for the Baltics in World War II. His most recent publication was Meat Grinder, The Battle for the Rajiv Salient, 1942 to 43. Pritt originally studied medicine at Oxford in London before joining the British Army as a doctor. He laterally worked as general practitioner for seven years. He now writes exclusively from his home in rural Scotland, where he also indulges his hobbies for wildlife and astrophotography. Um, in all seriousness, Pritt has also written about seven other books on the Eastern Front. Frankly, um, when you look at the scope of his work, I find it gibbonesque in scope and quality. I want to say today we're truly honored to have Pritt Botar, the author of Meat Grinder. This is The Battles for the Razev Salient, 1942 to 1943. And it took place right outside Moscow. It was the German invasion of the, the Barbarossa. The invasion was called Barbarossa. And they were stopped by the Russian forces right outside Moscow. But there was a salient. And um, I want to immediately ask Pritt to tell us what exactly is a salient? Good afternoon. Um, yes, a salient is a, a bulge in a line. So it's where one side occupies a position um, where both of the flanks are threatened by the enemy. Um, I guess a, a really well-known example for an American, American audience would be the Battle of the Bulge, where the Germans pushed into the American lines and created a salient. In the case of the Rajev salient, um, it was just where the, the battle lines eventually settled down after the German advance on Moscow ended and the Soviet counteroffensive ran out of energy. Right. Um, there were three fronts in this war. Um, you're an expert on the Eastern Front, and obviously you, you've covered the other two. What were the other two fronts besides the, the, the battle for Moscow? Um, the German invasion was divided into three um, army groups. Uh, army Group North was uh, aimed at Leningrad, uh, now St. Petersburg. Um, Army Group South um, fought its way across Ukraine, um, ultimately intended to advance onto the Volga River and then turn south into the Caucasus region, while Army Group Center pushed um, in, into the central region, um, aiming ultimately for Moscow. None of the three uh, main thrusts achieved their uh, ultimate purposes because the Germans had very much gambled on the war being over by the end of 1941. They had mobilized far more men than they could realistically afford to keep in the field. Um, they had stripped German industry quite badly. So when the uh, the operation was badly derailed outside Moscow, um, the consequences were uh, fairly severe for the German war effort. Is that because um, Hitler didn't read about Napoleon? Didn't he understand that this, you know, had occurred before that, you know, there's a little guy called Napoleon and he, he thought he'd pull the same stunt and the same thing happened, a winter and a coldness. I mean, they didn't seem to understand that, did they? It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Um, during the planning phase, um, uh, Paulus, who would then go on to be the commander who surrendered at Stalingrad, um, ran a series of war games to simulate how the invasion was going to unfold. Um, when his wife 
um, saw some of the documentation and realized that an invasion of um, the Soviet Union was being con seriously considered, she started leaving um, history books about Napoleon's disaster around for her husband to find when he came down for breakfast, etc. Um, just to sort of say, are, are you really serious about this? Yeah. And yet there they were, you know, um, the uh, original plan was to invade the Soviet Union starting in about May 1941 for a variety of reasons having to deal with um, uh, unrest in Yugoslavia and then due to weather problems finally they, the campaign got rolling on the 22nd of July 1941 so you know it's a it's a considerable ask to try to knock the Soviet Union out um, by Christmas when you're starting maybe six weeks later than you originally planned you're really making uh, it even harder for yourself and yet that's precisely what they tried to do okay why are you so fascinated about on the Eastern Front I mean your your books and I obviously have already given uh, the listeners your credits are really Gibbon-esque in, in scope. I, I, they're, they're detailed, they really are. I mean, you know, I, one of my favorite historians and books I've ever read in my life, obviously was the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. But your detail is so enormous. The battles, the the, the generals, the 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 ambushes. I mean, the details of that they lost this track on, they lost these tires, these trees were felled. It's it, it, It's enormous, but you're, your scope is so is so so fascinating. This Eastern Front scope, and I too have been interested in the Eastern Front for for a long time. And I, I, I read books like Bloodlands. I've read books like Stalingrad, The Battle for Moscow, The Black Book, uh, Hitler's Willing Executioners, The Ravine. Um, it, it, for some reason, the barbarity, the savagery, the, the difficulty of fighting in the on the Eastern Front is, is so otherworldly to 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 our daily existence that we can't really imagine human beings could go through something like this i mean it just doesn't seem to make sense that they were freezing they were starving they didn't know where they were they they, they were in mud they, they, they were just battling day after day it never stopped the savagery of, of on both sides the germans side, the scorched earth policy I don't know what's the matter with me, but I just find this to be really interesting. Uh, as this is this is what human beings on Earth did. What drew you to this? Um, very uh, very similar sorts of issues um, attracted me to it too. The big problems with um, the way that the history of the Eastern Front has been written in the English language is that, unlike almost any other conflict, um, the accounts that I grew up with in the seventies and eighties and even into the nineties were very much written not by the victors, but by the defeated. Um, because by the time these books were written, the Soviet Union was the enemy in the Cold War, um, and the Germans were being rehabilitated with a view to establishing West Germany and the Bundeswehr as part of NATO. A lot of the German generals who helped create the Bundeswehr were veterans, and because of the sheer scale of um, the, the conflict, most of them had seen uh, action on the Eastern Front. And their narrative very much dominated um, English language accounts of how the technically superior Wehrmacht, um, brilliantly led, was badly let down by Hitler, badly let down by the weather and the roads and the Russians uh, stroke Soviets. And they're, they're pretty liberal with not making a distinction between those two terms. Um, the enemy, at least, just ground the Germans down um, by sheer weight of numbers. And the reality is actually very different. Um, uh, the, 
the very great David Glantz, who has written extensively on the Eastern Front, was the first to start really mining um, the Soviet era um, documentation, which became available from about 1991 onwards. Uh, sadly, those archives are now uh, almost impossible to access once more. Um, but we managed to get an awful lot of information out at that time, which shows that this, as you say, was a conflict of just unmatched barbarity and ferocity. Um, for example, the project that I have just finished, uh, which is a two volume account of the siege of Leningrad, um, starts with uh, a simple fact. Uh, more Soviet citizens, uh, soldiers and civilians combined, died in the siege of Leningrad than British Empire war dead from both world wars combined. Right. The scale of the killing right. and, and the, the sheer scale of the landscape utterly dwarfs pretty much any other conflict um, of the 20th century. So let, let's give listeners a, a few statistics and then we'll delve into the meat of this conversation. Um, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, 24 million Soviets died, that, that civilians and military personnel in World War II. 418,000 U.S. soldiers died. 24 million total deaths versus 418, because we really didn't have any civilian deaths. 10 million Soviet soldiers were died, Soviet soldiers versus 416,000 United States soldiers in World War II. And by the way, that's both fronts in the United States. We're talking the Pacific Japanese War and the Eastern and the German War. So I don't think anybody in America really understands the scope of the loss of 24 million people. I think at the time they probably only had 100 million people or 120 million people. So they one out of every three or five people or something were lost in the Soviet Union. The barbarity of the war against the civilians, the hunger, the frozen, the starving, the slaughter, the, the shooting, the poison wells. They really had a campaign against the civilian population. The Germans did it, their scorched earth policy. They, because of what you've written about, they, they viewed them as subhuman and they were going to be slaves, which is quite another story. But when you really understand the scope of this, uh, it, 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 it just changes your mindset regarding what the Russians are thinking. So the crux of your book, um, the, the crux of this, this, this brilliant book, basically says that the Russians were unprepared for this. Uh, and as a result of being unprepared, they weren't armed properly. They didn't have a strategy. Their, their ranks had already been decimated by the Stalinist purges, the ranks of generals and, and, and other military uh, personnel have been devastated by a decade of Stalinist purges. And so they, they really were unprepared, but they were able to stop the, the, the Nazis um, in the, on these three fronts. But in the Rajev salient, um, they, they, their strategy seemed to be, let's just overwhelm them with people. So with bodies. And, and so I have quote after quote, uh, chapter after chapter from your book that basically just says, they threw their soldiers at the front lines of the Germans, regardless. There was no air cover. They, wave after wave, there's just, there's just paragraph after paragraph in, in your book about um, their, the, the Russians were mowed down in mass. The Germans couldn't believe that they, they threw another wave at them. The one point you describe how the, the Russians used their corpses of their own soldiers as cover for trenches. 
what's behind and of course before that i had read russia by anthony brevore and he talks about world war one and how they sent the troops to to fight the prussians and the and the and the, and the germans in world war one the polish and the germans in world war one and wave after wave of poorly armed or armed not at all soldiers just constantly assaulting the lines they had no shoes they, they had no food so this term meat grinder that your book is titled meat grinder seems to be the russian strategy of of winning a war and now and why i'm so happy to have you on this show because we have to talk about ukraine you can't pick up an article in any in any newspaper or website anymore in the last few weeks without the word meat grinder being described to being used to describe the two battles meat grinder meat grinder meat grinder once again the russians are throwing fresh troops poorly trained conscripts at the at, at the front lines to be killed by the ukrainians the ukrainians can't believe what they're seeing what's going on it's it's a a very well-made point there. Um, I think if you go back for, to the old armies of the Tsarist Empire, so um, the war with Japan in 1905, the First World War, and then follow that through the evolution of the Red Army um, in the years between the war with the um, Civil War uh, against the Whites, the Red Army in action in the Second World War, the Soviet Army of the Cold War era that I was um, matched against in my army days, and then the modern Russian army. The, the thing that comes out of all of this is that in many respects, Soviet Russian red armies have always been something of a blunt instrument. This is not a, this is not a sword, this is a bludgeon, or at best it's a very heavy mace. Now, you can improve the quality of your mace, you can learn to swing it rather more effectively, but it's not a sword, and it never will be. And we could go into great detail of why uh, it cannot, it will never be a sword. And a lot of that is cultural. It's to do with education levels. It's to do with um, inherited doctrine from the past, which carries on down, you know, for a remarkably long time. Um, and in a way, the, the story of the uh, Second World War on the Eastern Front is much like every other uh, army in the Second World War. Um, the, the Soviets went into it with the wrong equipment, the wrong doctrine, the wrong plans. They had to learn how to win this war in the most impossible of circumstances, really with the enemy at their throats. And this was no time to throw away your cudgel or your mace and say, guys, we need to make a sword. Really, they just had to pick up the cudgel that they had and, and learn how to use it more effectively. And, and that's exactly what they did. So yes, you're absolutely right. They attempted to bludgeon the Germans into defeat um, around the the Rajev salient and um, tragically in terms of, of loss of life we see a very similar process unfolding in the fighting around the towns of uh, Solidar and Bakhmut um, in the Donbass region at the moment. A lot of this reflects poor levels of training, um, it, level, it, it reflects inadequate uh, understanding of modern warfare and the, the real tragedy is how these recurring themes just echo on down the years. And as Bill Clinton once said, one of the few lessons that we ever learn from history is we don't really learn lessons from history. And uh, Russian stroke Soviet military thinking is a great example of that. Where does this utter total disregard 
that you know for the for, for human life really come from because reading your book you know they did it to themselves not only did they send their troops against the germans to be mowed down and machine gunned and if there was any question of um disloyalty or a troop deserted they shot them and they, they didn't even have a trial there was no court-martial in your book you describe how at one point there's a conversation um they did it and they shot 17 people just they just shot them like in put you know just killed them because somebody said oh they did it they didn't even really care if they did it or not i mean it just seems like it, not only are they indifferent towards the enemy they were indifferent toward themselves it's a fascinating thing and you can really lose yourself um in all sorts of theories about this. One of the abiding memories I have from um, my, my younger years when I read many of the great Russian classics uh, in translation, um, variously Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Turgenev, they all portray the ordinary Russian people, particularly in rural settings, as being fairly docile, fairly stubborn, um, fairly phlegmatic or stoic, just putting up with all sorts of hardships, etc. Perhaps elements of living in such uh, a climate of extremes, where in the summer the temperature will be, um, to use American measures, it'll be, you know, in the 90s a lot of the time. In the winter, the snow will be several feet deep. You know, having to live in that sort of uh, climate uh, without an awful lot of, um, you know, what we would take as fairly uh, basic uh, amenities like running water, yeah. constant electricity, heating, etc. I guess it does create a fairly stoic mindset. It's also worth remembering that um, Russia didn't abolish serfdom until well into the 19th century. So that tradition of deference of loyalty to your superiors is only about 150 years ago you know that, that these changes occurred maybe 160 years ago so but, you know that takes a long time to unravel there's also the issue of what are the differences um that are created by um the russian orthodox church as opposed to churches in the west and how does that influence thinking lots of these different factors they all probably contribute some of it also until the end of the Soviet Union, the media was controlled in a way that really hasn't been the case um, outside the Soviet Union in the West. Uh, when, when you are constantly fed one story and one version of facts, it does distort your opinions. And there's a very, very um, good book called Secondhand Time, which is a series of interviews with, if you like, the last Soviet generation. So these are the people who were uh, adults at the time of the fall of the Soviet Union. And one of the um, old, old men interviewed in this book says, I don't like this new world. In the old days, if something happened and I wanted to know what to think, I just read Pravda and it told me what to think. Now, for anyone growing up in the West, that's an astonishing mindset that you would just take for granted what the government mouthpiece is telling you. And yet that was the culture in the Soviet era. In many respects, it dates back to before the Soviet era. You know, there were reasons why the Bolsheviks and why Stalin were able to impose their form of rule upon the Soviet Union. And that does uh, go back to foundations that were laid uh, during the days of the Tsars. Where do they get all of these soldiers to go to, to do this? I mean, it seemed like the Germans thought they would be running out of soldiers. They killed so many. In your book, you talk about how the Germans couldn't believe that there were more, more people to recruit. 
they, it was like endless. It was sort of like an Asian, you know, wave where, where they just keep coming and coming and coming and coming. Is that what's going to go on now in Russia? They're talking about another mobilization. They're talking about increasing the army from 1.5 million to 2 million. Um, is 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 this the strategy even in the, in the 21st century? Uh, Putin is just going to go and find every young person between you know 18 and 35 or whatever and draft them and and throw them into the front lines of the of the Donbas and other regions in the Ukraine. Is that you think? Is that what he's thinking? He doesn't care. I don't think he does care at all. But right. I think it's interesting looking at the overall numbers. Undoubtedly, the Russian army has been mindlessly profligate with the way it has thrown away lives uh, in its attacks in the Donbass region. But if you think that total uh, Russian losses at the moment are probably um, running somewhere around 120 odd thousand yep. um, in about a year's fighting, nearly yep. a year's fighting, we're talking in my book about individual operations lasting a month or so where they lost at least that number and at the same time similar battles were raging around leningrad or on the approaches to stalingrad yes so, yeah the, the sheer scale of killing is actually nowhere near what happened in the past and i think that reflects that even within the former soviet union the tolerance of those numbers of casualties um, is much less than it was, um, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Nonetheless, it does appear to be the strategy that we are in a war, we don't have an option of, you know, throwing away this cudgel and, and learning how to be sword fighters, we're just going to have to carry on swinging that cudgel. How long Russia can do this materially um, in terms of, you know, there are all constant talks of they're running out of precision guided weapons, they're yeah. running out of tanks, etc. How long they can do it before the Russian people themselves say enough? Um, I, I suspect we are probably going to find out the answers to those in the coming months. This isn't your area of expertise, but just for two minutes, talk to us about Afghanistan. What made the Russians give up in Afghanistan? I mean, that, that's funnily not mentioned. I just read this analysis by some very brilliant person why Russia is going to stay in this forever, that, that this is who they are. But they did leave Afghanistan. Something happened and they switched. They did what we did in Afghanistan. They picked up and they left. Where... Just, just for one diversion, where could could that happen here? What caused well, that to happen? Well, one of the big reasons for the uh, decision to pull out of Afghanistan was um, in the context of, of a much wider change within the Soviet Union. By the time Gorbachev came to power, um, the defense budget was absorbing some absurd fraction of Soviet GDP. And this was simply not sustainable. So at a very early stage, Gorbachev made quite clear that he had absolutely no intention of continuing spending at that level, which is why he gave so much impetus to the talks uh, with the United States in order to start force reductions, not just put a cap on missile numbers, but actually we're going to reduce missile numbers, we're going to reduce forces in Germany, etc. The context of that meant that that you know, there were fewer troops left over for adventures like Afghanistan. Um, so uh, for once you had a, a political leadership that actually said, well, if we have fewer resources, we have to be sensible about, you know, our overall commitments and we have to reduce that. Um, there was also a feeling that actually this was not a winnable war, that, um, you know, an awful lot of Russians were dying um, and families were getting increasingly restless. And this was in the context of 
increasing liberalization across the Soviet Union, um, a freer press where people were able to ask much more than had ever been the case in the Soviet era about what is this, what is this for? Why are our sons dying in such large numbers there? Why are they coming home maimed and injured? Um, you know, what's in this for us? And ultimately, uh, you know, all of these trends coincided um, and regardless of whether the army wanted to stay there or not, um, Gorbachev just said, well, we, <laughs> you no longer have the forces to do so and, and pulled them out. So can that happen here in, in, in Ukraine? I saw a very interesting analysis of this by um, Mark Hurtling, who was a former uh, US Army general uh, about a year ago, not, not long after the invasion. And he talked about what percentage of uh, your forces you can afford to deploy like this. So he said, if you start with an army of, let us say, for the sake of argument, 100,000 men, and you say, OK, of these 100,000, um, let's say 40,000 are committed and there's nothing we can do about that. So these will be people who form training establishments. These will be your guided missile um, regiments, etc., your nuclear submarine crews. It, whatever it is, just for the sake of argument. So that leaves you potentially 60,000 men. And he said, you know, in the United States, we would say, okay, if you've got 60,000 potentially deployable troops, you can actually afford to have an operation um, involving only 20,000. Because at any one time, you're gonna have 20,000 in the field, you're gonna have 20,000 recovering from being in the field and 20,000 preparing to go into the field. You can only exceed that if you genuinely mount an operation that is going to be over by Christmas. You know, uh, in that case, that's fine. You can commit more troops than that. And in a way, that's the, what the Russians did just uh, under a year ago. They, you know, they famously said three days, maximum 10, this will be done. Uh, we'll have rolled over Ukraine. And then they find themselves in a war where you know, they rather than having one third of their available troops committed, they've got something like 70 or 80 percent of their available troops committed, um, which is why the threat to the Baltic states, to eastern Poland, etc., has practically evaporated because there are no troops left in, in those regions. Um, how long can you continue this? Well, already they can't. You know, they've they've already had to reduce the scale of their operations um, and uh, at the moment, they are throwing these human waves while they try to hold back their, well, what they regard as their better troops, uh, in in hope that they can then exploit whatever gains are made. But the Ukrainians are not allowing them to make any gains, and even their better troops, we're not talking, you know, like these are uh, crack elite formations. By the standards of Western forces, they are actually remarkably bad, um, and. Or, you know, the, even at the outset of the war, the, probably the average Ukrainian formation uh, could have outfought its equivalent Russian formation. As the war has gone on, the quality of Ukrainian forces has steadily improved, whilst that of their enemies has gone the other in the other direction. And, you know, not least because in the end, the Ukrainians are fighting for their homeland, whereas the Russians are fighting for someone else's homeland. And that's a very different level of motivation. You know, at one point in the book, you you mentioned that at one point there were like six hundred and fifty thousand deserters in the Russian army. Is that is that accurate? Um, probably throughout the uh, 
the war, yes. The, the... Right, right. Throughout the war, but I mean, that's six hundred. That's more. That, that's an enormous, enormous number. Um, do you think that there's a, a point where these kids know they're going to die, know that their generals are sending them to to instant death in, to, on these fronts in the Ukraine and the Donbass region, and they simply don't want to go? Or you you have all these uh, uh, anecdotes in this, in the in stories about people shooting themselves or holding their hands up, Russian soldiers holding their hands up so that the end the Germans will shoot their hand and then they can crawl back to the to the you know or to the supposed medic station and. Get Get out of the, the front lines. I mean, is there going to be a point where like a, a, a modern kid is going to look at this and go, I am not going to die. I don't care. I'll shoot, the, I'll shoot my commander. I'll shoot my general. I'll do something, anything to get out of this. Can you foresee that based on your, your experience in, in what happened in, um, in, in, in World War II? Well, it's already happening. There have been numerous accounts of entire units just refusing to go. Oh yeah. And there have been, there have been Certainly rumors of uh, uh, soldiers shooting their officers. Um, and for understandable reasons, it's very difficult to confirm these, but certainly a number of officers have died in slightly odd circumstances, you know. Um, one of the, the features of the battles that I described in my numerous books was how both sides attempted to encourage desertion by the other side. So, you know, uh, propaganda broadcasts via, via loudspeakers, leaflets being dropped or left where enemy patrols were going to find them, etc. We now have the modern equivalent of that, where um, the Ukrainians are texting uh, phone numbers to Russian troops saying, if you want to surrender, phone this number and we can arrange a safe way for you to do so. It's exactly the same thing. It's just the modern technology. Um, and it's interesting how the waves of opposition to the war in uh, Russian cities have gone. There was a, a, you know, there was quite outspoken opposition to the war at the outset, particularly uh, in St. Petersburg and, and a couple of the more, if you like, liberal-minded cities. That was very rapidly suppressed, but it does continue. It's just not reported very much. The next big wave of resistance came when partial mobilization was declared. You know, it's one thing to be you know, intellectually against a war because the, it's not a morally good thing to do, etc. That's kind of reinforced when it's your own son who's being dragged off uh, and put in uniform and sent off to war. You know, it concentrates the mind. And uh, as you said earlier on, if mobilization is extended as, as it is being done, that will only uh, increase resentment, particularly as whatever uh, the, the Russian government may do, they can't control the media in the same way that, for example, Stalin or Hitler could have done. Yeah. And the average Russian will know perfectly well yeah. that thousands of, of sons of Russia are perishing in Donbass for the ruins of a few towns. And it's not even as if, you know, you can look on a map and say, OK, this is a costly battle. But if we if we break through here, then we can, you know, look, there's a war winning objective within reach. You just look at these towns on a map and you scratch your head and you say, so what? You know, if if a Russian flag flies over these towns, it doesn't really matter. In fact, we're already seeing this, that the Ukrainians have become very, very skilled at turning these um, towns in Donbass into killing grounds. Yeah. Slaughtering the Russian army there. And then when it gets to the point where actually, you know, our own losses are beginning to ratchet up and it's, and this isn't such a good exchange, right? The Ukrainians just give the towns up and pull back because 
these towns in this you know, old industrial region, yeah. they're only about two or three miles apart. Yeah. So, you know, even if you gain one of these, your next bit of close quarter combat is just a couple of miles down the road. You don't have to, no state, this isn't, like, this isn't like the Second World War or even the First World War where you have to batter your way through intensely fortified lines. But if we can break through, we can achieve, you know, freedom of maneuver. It's just not happening in, in uh, uh, Ukraine. In fact, the only side that has achieved anything approaching freedom of maneuver were the Ukrainians uh, in their great counteroffensive near Kharkov. Right. You mentioned Stalin just now. It does seem that Putin is like modern Stalin. He just doesn't care. He's going to lie. He's going to um, stonewall. He's going to threaten. Uh, he, he, he's really like got Stalin's blood running through him. There, there is a sense of like just, you know, we're going to do this. Nobody's going to tell us not. And we everybody can hate us and we don't care. We're going to muscle through this. It's really remarkable. Is there a comparison between Stalin and Putin? Of course there is. And, you know, Putin has made no secret of his long-term ambition right. to reverse so many of the changes that have occurred in the Soviet Union uh, or in, occurred in Russia at the end of the Soviet Union. He still regards the 1980s as the great days of the Soviet empire. Um, he absolutely believes that Ukraine, Belarus, uh, the Baltic states, um, all of the old states in the Caucasus and Southern Asia, they should be part of the Russian Empire. Um, many of those close to him go even further, uh, going even before Stalin, if you go back to the days of Trotsky and Lenin, there was a great belief that the Bolshevik state was the inheritor of the Tsarist Empire, yep. and that included Poland. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you well, know, you notice, notice today Poland's sending their the, 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 the tanks, uh, regardless of now what the Germans say they're going to do one way or the other, they're going to they're going to do that. I mean, anybody who lived in Poland knows what the Russians are capable of. That's for sure. Exactly. And it's interesting to see that the nations that are absolutely vociferous about supporting Ukraine are Poland, yeah. the Baltic states, Finland. Because guess what? They know they're next Estonia, to the Latvia. Yeah, it's Baltic, you said the Baltic states. Exactly. Okay, I want to talk about two other things before we wrap up. I want to know your thoughts. Take off your brilliant, brilliant historian hat and put on your today's headline hat, okay? Um, are we doing the right thing? Is the West arming them properly? Uh, is, is, the, is the economic response proper? Is our level of support for Ukraine proper, proper in your opinion? Um, can we, the Ukrainians win this war and get the Russians to either, you know, come to the peace table in some sort of face-saving thing or else withdraw completely? Um, how are we handling this? I have my own thoughts, but I really want to hear yours. What do you think? So th this is these are purely my personal thoughts. Yes. It's more about it than anybody else's. You know, my own view is what we're doing is right. Um, we should have been, for example, we should have been handing over battle tanks several months ago. Not yep. My thoughts too. Yep. <laughs> Better late than never. Fine. Yep. There's also a question, or I mean, this is an important point. There is no point in sending 200 M1 tanks or 300 Leopard twos to uh ukraine today you have to train people how to use them and that takes time these are very complex weapon systems this is not like 
Lend-Lease, where you could send a ship full of Sherman tanks to the Eastern Front and the, the uh, Soviet soldiers would climb into them and figure out which were the gear sticks and which were the, the throttles, etc., and would be able to put them into use. You can't do that with a modern tank. They are far, far more complex and maintaining them is a huge um, uh, overhead. You know, um, when you look at, for example, modern aircraft, uh, it's common knowledge that a jet fighter for every hour of uh, flight requires tens of hours of maintenance time in order to do that. Um, and actually, you know, modern tanks, even modern artillery are not that much different. So there is a rate at which the Ukrainians can absorb this kit. Having said that, we could have gone faster. And I have absolutely no doubt that many of the Ukrainian soldiers who are currently in Poland and other Western countries, other NATO countries undergoing training are probably already getting training on these tanks that are about to be sent out there, which is great. Can Ukraine win the war? Absolutely they can. Wow, great. And, and, I, and I have absolutely no doubts on that. In fact, I would even go so far as to say, I can conceive of almost no circumstances in which Russia wins the war. Um, because, wow, wonderful news. You know, because it just the sheer scale of it, you think right. of, even if they mobilize their entire army, um, how do you occupy a country that's, you know, bigger than France? Yeah. It, you know, particularly yeah. with those long, porous borders, it's just not going to happen. Um, uh, where, where, how does this end? Well, you know, the, okay, you can say that most conflicts in the end end with uh, a peace treaty and with negotiation, some degree of compromise. How do you compromise with uh, a state that has broken treaties in the past and has ridden oh, Russia yeah. over everything? I've said from the start to my friends that for me, this conflict will end with, or the beginning of the end, if you like, will be Putin's death. And that'll be when um, internal conflicts within Russia will take precedence over external adventures. The tragedy is just how many people are going to have to die before we get to that stage. And I really haven't changed my opinion on that since this war began. How many people? You know, already we're well over 100,000 uh, yeah. Russian dead. Ukrainian losses, although they're quite quiet about it, are yeah. probably not that much short of that overall. Yeah. And just the immense damage done to Ukraine. You know, my my daughter and her husband were uh, in Kiev a few years ago, and, and they remember it as a beautiful city. Yes. And, you know, they, they visited a lot of other places and said, you know, this was a real up-and-coming state. Oh, yeah. And it certainly isn't anymore. So at some point, there's going to be a rebuilding. It seems to me that an awful lot of um, Russian assets have been seized in the West. And yes. I can think of a fairly obvious way of spending those assets. Yes, that's really the case. Um, OK, I'm not going to take any more of your time. I, I just want to wrap up by saying once again that um, Meat Grinder by Prit Buttar is a really amazing book, uh, a, a, a very sober read, um, and uh, kind of just gives you a little bit more of a perspective on what the human race is capable of, what the Germans were capable of, what the Russians were capable of. And um, it, it's a mirror, as, a, as like in Barbara Tuckman's uh, Distant Mirror, it's a mirror of today, because it certainly is um, the Russian strategy uh, flooding the Ukraine with uh, poorly equipped, untrained soldiers, complete indifference to their lives, sending them into in, into battle, which they they know they're going to have a 60, 70 percent mortality rate, uh, hasn't changed it all. 
And um, if you want to really read the strategy behind that, you know, please read Meat Grinder, The Battle for the Razev Salient, 1942 for 1943, Prit Batar. Thank you so much. I was honored to have you. Thank you very much for having me. Listeners, thanks again for tuning in to Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo. Your input is valuable to us, and we'd really like to hear from you. Please send us an email anytime with feedback at ootbwithjrusso at gmail.com and follow us on our Twitter page, ootbwithjrusso. Listeners, believe it or not, we're on Instagram. Please follow us at ootbwithjrusso on Instagram. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.